understand there are still a few people preparing for the meeting following service, so I was worried you'd have to start without me because I was running late and I actually get to pause and uh, take a breath. This season, called Epiphany, we talk about the ways that God's light and life and love shine upon us. It is also true that God has this way of disrupting things. And it seems like that's been the pattern since the very beginning. And so today, as we consider these former fishing people who become Jesus' followers, we will be looking at how their lives are both disrupted and disrupting. According to St. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And Jesus called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed Jesus. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. The Gospel of our Lord. Won't you be seated? Grace and peace to you from God, the extravagant creator, 
Jesus, the risen Christ, and the Spirit of God who animates us to be witnesses to God's love in the world. It would seem that God cannot leave well enough alone. You remember the story in the beginning where there was chaos, there was this void, there was nothingness. And God, with a strong word, calls into being darkness and light and life and some order and rhythm and beauty of the world. And the story is punctuated by God evaluating that work and saying, this is complete, this is good. Now, you might think of God as stoically saying that. I like to think of God as maybe even doing a fist in the air. And yes, it is good. It is complete. In order for creation to happen, God had to disrupt stuff. God could not leave well enough alone. And as you look at the stories in Scripture of all of these lives, that's the pattern. It's funny, when you start looking at it that way, it's hard to unsee it or to not see God disrupting along the way. And certainly that is the truth for two sets of brothers in Galilee. Their lives are disrupted twice. You know that line where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people? It's confession time. I never really got that. And I never really understood why it was that two sets of brothers would drop the nets, leave their dad, leave the boat, and start following Jesus. Now, this isn't the whole answer, but it might be part of the answer. The commentary by Warren Carter, it's one that I draw on heavily as I preach on Matthew's gospel, says that there's pretty good evidence that fishing folk in Jesus' day were not independent. They worked for the empire. So guess what that means? They decide where you fish, what you fish for, how much fish you get to keep, and the fish fed the empire. That's how the soldiers ate. That's how the functionaries ate. That's how the senators ate. So these fisher folk had their lives already programmed. They already were disrupted. And chances are they were kind of just sick and tired of the way things were going. As with many moves we make in life, we make them away from things, but we also make them toward things. So Jesus says, I'm going to make you fish for people. A whole different approach. And I enjoy what Dr. Jillian Engelhardt from Texas Christian University says about this kind of disruption that when the disciples leave, they are turning their back on the empire and they are turning toward Jesus and as they stop fishing so that the empire can exploit, 
they start fishing for people where God's realm and rule of justice and mercy take place. That's what they're getting themselves into, whether they know it or whether they don't. Their lives are disrupted, certainly, when they leave their work, when they leave their family, when they leave their nets. They've moved from that to something. To do a little more disrupting, if the truth must be told. Because evidently, in the face of things like the empire, in the face of things like people being shamed or being cast out of their faith communities, God just can't leave well enough alone. And so God shows up in the world, embodied in Jesus, who does things like preach good news to the poor, who heals people of their illnesses, who reconnects people back into community, who resists, who resists the dehumanizing and life-limiting ways that seem to be the way it is in the world. They disrupt. They break it apart. Now, in changing vocations, the disruption probably was not huge. Maybe Rome didn't notice at first. But you get the sense as you read Matthew's Gospel that, yeah, they were feeling threatened by Jesus and by his followers. John the Baptizer, he's arrested not for parking tickets. He spoke truth to power. They didn't like it. Jesus, you know what happens to him. The temple authorities actually find common cause with not their favorite people, the Roman Empire, because they too are threatened by Jesus' disruptive ways. Some of you are familiar with the phrase, making good trouble. I love that. The late Senator John Lewis, a civil rights champion and ally of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, that's what we're really called to do, is to make good trouble. I'm not a very good troublemaker. I'm kind of a go-along, get-along guy. That's sort of how I've navigated life for the most part. And so it's difficult for me to imagine doing something like, say, Viola Desmond, when she says, you know, I am really sick and tired of segregation in movie theaters, and I'm going to sit where I paid to sit. Bless her. She did. I'm not sure I would have that kind of chutzpah. I'd probably be, okay, and I'd go sit where they told me to sit, even though I paid too much for a ticket to sit in the back behind a pillar. But she does. But am I asking us all to be Viola Desmond? Or Martin Luther King Jr.? Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Well, if you are, bless you. <laughs> but I suspect that that's not our call either. That our form of good trouble, our form of disrupting, is often more subtle. I love what Dr. 
Martin Luther, the 15th century monk guy, not the civil rights guy, <laughs> had to say about our prayer when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. He says there are a couple things that go on. One of them is we pray that that happens to us so that, yes, our little agendas get disrupted, but also that we disrupt the schemes that negate life the schemes that take people's dignity and take their livelihoods. Yeah, we pray for that. <laughs> so be careful what you pray for, my friends. But we can and often do become disruptors. Now, you're a respectable looking group of people. But I know for a fact that you make good trouble. I've seen it. Everything from hanging out an orange t-shirt that says every child matters to supporting things like the breakfast program, that's good trouble. You make it. And you support places like the Hope Center. Open arms. That's good trouble. That's defeating the schemes that would keep people down, right? And we know it's out there. I mean, we're not the empire, but you may be a little troubled to hear that the CEO of a corporation, a big one, makes 147 times the amount of, say, what would be called an essential worker. Like if you go to a restaurant and you're being served, the CEO of that company probably made, by January 3rd lunchtime, more than the person serving your meal does in the whole year. That's not good trouble. And so when we turn our attention to things like the catechism, or certainly to Jesus' disruptive ways, that's kind of what we're looking at. We are saying not all is rosy and perfect in our world. And in our own way, large or small, it might be to us to do a little disrupting. I've noticed post-pandemic, and maybe a lot of times, how it's easy to make other people invisible, where we walk right by them, whether again it's the grocery clerk, or maybe it's just somebody walking down the street. What if we took time? to actually regard somebody as who they really are. How subversive would it be in the DMV line when everybody's hassled to look at that clerk or that person in line next to you and say inwardly and act as if I'm in the presence of someone made in the image of God just as we ourselves are made in the image of God. How disruptive would that be? Now that sounds nice. But I'm going to tell you, we won't always be thanked for our disruption. Think John the Baptist. Think Jesus. Think the disciples. Think Viola Desmond. Think us. 
the way things are and the people who benefit from the way things are aren't going to applaud and say, isn't that nice? They're going to feel some threat by being who we are and who we are called to be. But we don't do that to be obnoxious or to put anybody down. We do that because we live in a pattern that God established to disrupt for a good cause and a good reason. Just as God decides to tame chaos and create, isn't that what the church is called to do too, in a way? Aren't we called to confront the things that really aren't right and to do something, even if it's little, like a mustard seed, to remedy it? I think God, too, as an interrupter and disruptor, doesn't do that just for kicks. And so much of what I've said, I hope doesn't sound like moralizing, but I want to give it some grounding. And here is the grounding. That every encounter God makes in our world and in our lives is for a purpose. It is a purpose that is outlined by the prophets that St. Paul talks about, and certainly the Gospels tell the story of the restoration of all things. So as far as God is concerned, it might well be the stakes are everything. And the motivator and the driving force is the love of God. Bless you, disruptors, one and all. May God continue to give us courage to do what we are called to do, especially when people may not like it. Bless the church, even now as patterns break. I leave you with this. Today we get to say a prayer of thanksgiving for some disruption in Palestine. They have never, ever, ever had a woman pastor. Figuring the time change now, I think Pastor Sally Azar is the first. Our Bishop Michael is there. Our bishops from the ELCIC are there to bear witness to how God messes with stuff and does it out of love. Amen. Amen.